Father, uh, once again we ask for your help, uh, ask for the leading of your Holy Spirit, so that we will indeed hear this wonderful word, that this gospel, this word of truth, might lift our hearts and really encourage us this evening hour. Help us to listen well, to hear your voice, and may it be uh, something that changes us this evening and forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have uh, come to the end of Paul's song of celebration that we've spent some time uh, in these last number of weeks, where Paul eulogizes God, he speaks well of him, he blesses the name of, of our God. And as Paul begins the last section, he returns to the subject of election that he dealt with earlier on um, in his song of praise. And Paul finds this doctrine of election comforting. It's interesting that the one thing that we probably find disturbing, or some of us find disturbing, Paul finds comforting, as I think we should too, by the way. This is here for our comfort and for our help. But in verses 11 to 14, Paul moves from election in general terms to point out the implications of election for Gentile believers. For Gentile believers. Notice the change of pronouns in verses 11 to 14. And I, I, I um, have them here written out in such a way that I, at least I thought I did. Um, well, I haven't. They are. I've lost my little piece of paper. This is what happens when you um, are only half awake. Let me, let me read it in a way. He uses we, and then he uses you. So, in him we, that is Jewish Christians, were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, that's Jewish Christians, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, that's Gentile Christians, also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your that's Jewish, or the Gentile uh, Christians, salvation. Having believed you, Gentile Christians, were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a, a deposit guaranteeing our, which is actually Jewish and Gentile Christians, inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we... Jewish Christians, you, Gentile Christians, the same thing happens to both, but he's, he's bringing together these two different types of people and brings them together in an understanding of their inheritance under God and his inheritance to them. So Paul is celebrating the wonder of salvation and the miracle of Jews being saved in Christ and Gentiles being saved in Christ. And as we thought about in our opening prayer, our great triune God is at work together. The Father plans salvation. We've seen that really in verses uh, 3 to 6. The Son provides salvation, shedding his blood. That's mentioned in 7 to 10, dealt with there. And the Holy Spirit 
apply salvation in the passage that we're going to look at tonight. And this is true for people from a Jewish background, and it's also true for people from a Gentile background. Now, Paul's going to deal with this in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as well, because this is a big theme of his, the unity of God's new community, the unity of God's new community, so that not only Jews but Gentiles can become part of this new church of God. But back to chapter 1. And as we've been thinking about this great blessing to him because of his great blessing to us, we have to think again about what we thank God for. It's often been noted that very often we're frivolous and trivial and superficial in the way we thank God. And if we probably think about our prayers, if we think about how we thank God, what are the things that we tend to thank him for? Well, if you're like me, you probably thank him for health and, and work and family and nice weather. Don't we always thank God for nice weather? We really don't thank God for not nice weather. But we thank him for these ordinary things. And they are all blessings, aren't they? And we should thank him for these things. But do we regularly or ever thank God and praise God for the things that Paul highlights in verses 3 to 14. For instance, do we ever thank God that he has chosen us? That he's chosen us to be his children and his family because of his pleasure and because of his will. Do we ever thank God for his redemption? Probably more often than not, we do. So instead of the eternal punishment that we deserve, Jesus dies and pays the price of our sin. Do we ever thank God that he has enlightened our minds about his agenda and his plan for the future? Verses 9 and 10. See, Paul is piling up the blessings. We have the knowledge and insight to know where history is going. Do you know where history is going? Well, verse 10 tells us where history is going. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Let me pause for a minute here because I think it's important. Often we're told by the social liberals that we have got to get on the right side of history. Do you know that term, the right side of history? You don't want to be found on the wrong side of history, particularly when it comes to moral issues. And they tell us, of course, that our morality which is biblical, is primitive. It's out of date. It's Victorian. And they say, you don't want to get caught on the wrong side of history. Well, this tells us where history actually is going, and it tells us we are going to be on the right side of history because God is going to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. But do we ever Thank God. Again, Paul is repeating himself. Verse 6, he talks about praise. Verse 12, praise. Verse 14, praise. See, an understanding of all the doctrine that is presented for us in this passage leads us to glorify him. See, the purpose of all things, including sound doctrine, 
leads us to glorify him. Now, of course, we're comforted, as I've mentioned. And of course, we feel blessed. And we, we get this amazing sense of relief and security. But primarily, the reason for all of this is for his glory. His glory. Born enemies. They absolutely hated each other. And yet, in Christ, Jews and Gentiles became one, which is exactly the agenda that God is working towards, to bring all things, we might say, including Jews and Gentiles, in heaven and on earth, together under one head, even Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, for instance, we'll see this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. Chapter 2, you notice verse 11. If you've got um, a modern translation, you'll probably see a heading like, one in Christ, Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. So the answer to this separation, this enmity, this aggression between Jews and Gentiles is Jesus. The reconciler is Jesus. The, The reconciliation message is the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus brings all kinds of people together in unity. I mean, look, look around tonight. You, we're all from different kinds of backgrounds, different denominations, even another little picture of what Christ is doing, what God is working towards, bringing all things together under one head in God's new community. So the church, you see, bringing Jews and Gentiles together is is central to the great cosmic plan of God. And we're in it. We're part of it. That's the thrill. That's the privilege. And we are to be this chosen people who will display the truth to the whole world. And of course, our message is the only hope that the world has. I mean, can you think of anything else or anyone else who could do this? Uh, I don't know if you've ever studied history, but throughout history, different religions, different forms of politics, different empires, different movements have tried and failed to to unite. Think of communism. Think of Nazism. There's a whole host of different movements. But the Church of Jesus Christ is the only one that can bring Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, together in Christ. It's the only body, the only idea, the only agenda that's going to work. And the process is actually spelled out for us. So we, um, we can see what, what, how God is going to bring all things together. He says there, there are three, three ways. One is hearing. And then we have, secondly, believing. And then, thirdly, sealing. And we'll, we'll finish with these this evening. First of all, hearing. And you also were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. It is a blessing of God to hear the gospel. Do do you believe that? Do you think that? To hear it with understanding. That's the greatest blessing we could probably ever have. Now, in the parable of the sower, we're, we're told by Jesus that not everyone who hears the gospel really hears it and understands it and receives it. In fact, 75% of the soil rejected the word. 75% of the hearts rejected the gospel. 
But these Gentile Christians heard the gospel proclaimed, understood it, and received it. So when we gather together like this, we should be coming saying, God, what are you saying? And help me hear it. What are you saying? Help me understand it. What are you saying? Help me embrace it. That should be our prayer. So that the word becomes the gospel of our salvation. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then, of course, there is believing it. Having believed, verse 13. The gospel must be proclaimed. It must be heard, yes. It must be understood. And it must be believed. And if we're going to be saved, the word of truth must become the the gospel of our salvation. And for that to happen, we've got to believe it. Believe it. Some, of course, will say, it's not for me. Um, Some will get quite angry uh, at the, the message. Some are offended. And some will put all kinds of other barriers like self or tradition or religion in place of belief. And and they simply will not believe. But there is only one saving response. And that's to believe. Now 100% I believe in God's sovereignty in the issue of salvation. 100%. But 100% I also believe in our responsibility to proclaim the word of truth. So that it might be heard. So that it might be believed. So how are we going to get the gospel to the nations? How are we going to get the gospel to our nation? How are we going to get the gospel to other lands? Well, you'll be pleased to know that the Kirk Session are working on a 2020 vision plan for evangelism. Would you pray for that? And when, when it comes out, will you participate in it, please? You probably know what I'm going to say next, don't you? One simple way is to be involved in this, isn't it? Isn't this how people can hear the gospel? Isn't this how people can actually believe the gospel? It's called Christianity Explored. And guess what? You and I have an opportunity of being involved in this kind of process. We have the privilege. One key question we must keep asking, how do we get the gospel proclaimed? So that it's heard. So that it is believed. This is why we're here. This must be high up on our agenda because it's high up on God's agenda. These Gentiles heard and believed. There are millions of Gentiles all around us in our land, the island of Ireland, who need to hear and believe. Is this our agenda? I mean, could it be that we have got other ideas of what we should be doing? That's why we began with uh, Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? 
as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the mission of the church. The great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. So tonight I ask you, are you actively, prayerfully, financially involved in God's agenda? Because we want to have people hear and people believe. It's his agenda. It must be ours. And then the third part of it is the sealing. To be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse uh, 13, the end of verse 13 and then to 14. 